Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Why Do We Do That? Uh, I am your host, Ryan Moyer. Now, since this is our very first broadcast, I thought that uh, it would be very important to answer two uh, very broad questions. Uh, the first being, uh, who am I? And the second being, uh, who is this podcast for? Uh, so I am a social psychologist by training. Uh, so social psychology is essentially the uh, study of how uh, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are influenced by social situations. Uh, so I earned my PhD uh, from Florida Atlantic University in South Florida. Uh, my dissertation looked at uh, uh, the relationship between self-esteem and magical thinking and uh, superstitious behavior. Um, but uh, in general, uh, I'm very familiar with um, any, any sort of research area related to social cognition or decision making. Uh, currently, I am an instructor uh, at a local university teaching a uh, psychology course. Uh, so who is this for? Um, this is a psychology podcast, um, but it is for anyone that is in general just curious about human behavior. Um, so do you, you know, do you like having conversations with your friends about why people do what they do? Then this podcast is for you. Um, do you like uh, reading articles about human behavior. Um, do you uh, do you like understanding uh, trends, uh, looking at trends in culture from a psychological perspective? Um, if, if those sound, if any of those descriptions sound like you, then then this is going to be a podcast that you will enjoy. Uh, so it will essentially be formatted as a dialogue um, between myself and. Uh, a variety of individuals, um, hopefully uh, experts in their field. Uh, so specifically, I'll be focusing on having conversations with social scientists, uh, clinicians or, or clinical psychologists, and also anyone that uses applied psychology in their job. Um, that's the ultimate goal. Have, a, have an interesting conversation about uh, a, a topic that, that these people are passionate about. And that's essentially, you know, the, the reason I started this podcast uh, in the first place is because I had uh, such a good time in grad school, uh, you know, drinking beers with my classmates and just having an interesting conversation about human behavior. It might be related to uh, current events um, or our research. It, it could be just about anything, but it was, there were very rich and meaningful conversations. And uh, since podcasts have exploded in the past 10 years, I thought this would be a perfect opportunity to capture some conversations between myself and other, uh, other individuals that are experts in human behavior. My guest for the first episode of this podcast is Dr. Todd Shackelford. Todd is an evolutionary psychologist, uh, and he's also the distinguished professor and Chair of Psychology at Oakland University. Uh, his research uh, focuses currently on uh, men's physical, emotional, and sexual violence against their partners. Uh, he's also the founder of the journal Evolutionary Psychological Science. Um, we had a, a long conversation about sort of the broad aspects of evolutionary psychology. 
Uh, I'm personally a, a big fan of the area of evolutionary psychology because uh, it goes uh, beyond some of the uh, biological explanations for human behavior. So if you think about, um, you know, everyone can kind of easily get on board with the idea that there are biological influences on human behavior, uh, genetics, um, hormones, all that kind of stuff, how our brain is wired. Um, we all understand that, but evolutionary psychology attempts to go uh, one step beyond that and answer the question of why. Why is it that our brains are, are wired a certain way? Why is it that we have certain preferences for mates? And I always found that uh, interesting um, because evolutionary psychology looks to the past. It looks at the, uh, the idea that um, specific evolutionary challenges um, may have been uh, solved through uh, natural selection and the idea that, uh, that certain behavioral tendencies and, and patterns of behavior uh, would make a, an, an, organism, an organism more likely to pass on their genes to the next generation. Um, and so we, we, I'm very interested in that and uh, we had a good conversation. We talked about um, a lot about mate preferences um, in terms of personality as well as physical mate preferences. Um, we talked about uh, jealousy and infidelity, which is um, which Todd has done a, a lot of research in, in that area as well. And uh, I really hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, here's Todd Shackelford. All right, so we're here with Todd Shackelford. Um, Todd, uh, so you've been uh, an evolutionary psychologist for over 20 years now. Uh, could you just start by giving us a, an overview of the principles that underlie evolutionary psychology? Sure, happy to, and, and thanks for having me on, Ryan. I appreciate it. Um, so basically, uh, evolutionary psychology, I see it as a perspective rather than sort of an area within psychology. Um, essentially, evolutionary psychology is the application of Darwin's principles of natural and sexual selection to the study of the mind. That is, to the study of the way the mind works, how it's apparently designed, we say apparently designed because there's no designer, how it appears to be designed, and what it appears to be designed to do. So while there is, of course, this subfield called evolutionary psychology, um, you know, uh, in principle, or maybe in practice, uh, if enough time passes, there won't be any more evolutionary psychology because all psychology will be evolutionary psychology. Um, I mean, evolution by natural selection is the only scientific cause that we know of uh, capable of producing complex apparent design. Um, you know, there are no creationist psychologists that I'm not legitimate psychologists. Um, and so you don't really have an alternative, but to take an evolutionary perspective. I mean, there really isn't, you know, a defensible, respectable alternative. Right. And so um, I always found it interesting, the analogy to the human body in the sense that we have uh, individual organs responsible for very specific tasks that all function, make, make our body function. Um, and, and the brain, so is it the idea that the brain is, is set up the same way, both anatomically and, uh, and with the non, just how it functions? 
It is in many ways, and, and many evolutionary psychologists and, and others have made just that kind of argument. Actually, it's not unique to evolutionary psychologists. It's an argument that many cognitive psychologists um, make to sort of describe the structure of the mind. And that's exactly um, as you've just suggested. The idea is that, you know, if you open up the human body, you won't find one giant organ that does everything, you know, that, you know, pushes blood throughout the body and detoxifies the body. You have separate specialized adaptations or organs, each one of which is designed uh, to solve a particular problem. And there's really no reason to think that, uh, that the mind will be any different. Um, that is that the information processing mechanisms of the mind will be any different. Um, another term uh, for information processing mechanism uh, is a mental organ. So rather than a physiological organ, a mental organ. But you asked the question about whether we might expect the brain itself to be physiologically built in these modules. And I don't think there's any reason to expect necessarily that they are. Um, many people have, I think it's a confusion. Um, uh, in other words, there's no reason to expect necessarily that the physiology of the brain will reflect the information processing functioning of the mechanisms of the mind. Um, occasionally, there is evidence for uh, domain specificity of, you know, brain areas. Um, but for example, let me just give you an example. There's incredibly good evidence that uh, jealousy, let's say sexual jealousy, is very much a domain-specific sort of mechanism of the mind. It's, um, it's you know, it's, it's cute, it's triggered by very specific sorts of inputs, and it's a very predictable pattern of, of information processing. However, uh, in large part, uh, neuropsychologists who, who have investigated, uh, you know, using MRI technology, um, where in the mind, where, sorry, where in the brain are these sexual jealousy mechanisms? What they find is it's all over the brain. I mean, it's not just in one area. There isn't a single area of the brain that is dedicated to, you know, processing information relevant to sexual jealousy or a partner's infidelity. So, I mean, having said that, I, I'm, I'm well aware uh, that there are some areas of the brain that do appear to be relatively specialized, like the um, a very specific area of the brain that sort of lights up, you know, when people are detecting faces, for example, or recognizing, you know, known faces. All of which is to say, we don't expect necessarily, we don't expect a one-to-one -one relationship between the domain specificity of the mind and the domain specificity of the brain. Okay. Um, so um, it, it seems, it, it seems on the surface that it, it would be a difficult task to explain current, uh, current psychological phenomena, how we behave now using an environment of our ancestors that were, you know, hundreds and thousands and uh, in many cases, yet yeah, millions of years ago. Um, how, how, how do you start to answer a question using evolutionary psychology when you know that the environment um, that, that built these mechanisms is completely different from today? That's a great question. Um, and, and you have to be aware of this. You have to be sensitive to this. Um, and I'll just go back to the example of uh, sexual jealousy. So yes, of course, there are many features of the modern environment that are different uh, from the likely ancestral environment or the, the environment that we 
you know, have re good reason to believe uh, was characteristic uh, of our ancestors. But there are also likely to be some parallels. So for example, uh, there's no reason to believe that our ancestors, uh, that is all of our ancestors, our male and female ancestors, didn't also face relatively sex-specific adaptive problems when it comes to relatedness to offspring. So ancestral males almost certainly uh, experienced what's referred to as paternal uncertainty. That is, could never be certain that the offspring their partners were producing were in fact their genetic offspring, whereas ancestral females, there's no reason to think that they weren't uh, absolutely certain that the offspring they're pushing out is their own. And so the modern environment is such, yes, in many ways it's different, but there are some, um, some similarities. For example, it remains the case that paternal uncertainty Okay, is, is an adaptive problem, or you know, is um, it's just as relevant to understanding the way the mind works today as it was over much of our evolutionary history. Uh, similarly, with maternal certainty, um, but you know, there are you know there are occasions where you have to uh, take into consideration you know how the modern environment might might affect those underlying psychological adaptations. Those, for example, that were built to solve problems of, of partners' infidelity. So, for example, uh, we now have, you know, widespread access to birth control. And one might predict, well, maybe a man who's, you know, partnered to a woman who's on birth control, well, maybe that just nullifies the whole risk of paternity certainty problem. And maybe you would expect those men, therefore, to not express the same level of sexual jealousy. I mean, I would have predicted this data have been collected, the data have been collected, and you know, the modern male mind isn't designed to process, you know, the uniquely contraceptive effect of modern birth control. And men act just the same way. I mean, they're just as sexually jealous, whether or not their partner's on, you know, a super effective birth control or not. The argument is that effective birth control, at least that effective, is, is not, uh, was not uh, a feature of our evolutionary history. And therefore, we're unlikely to have evolved, you know, uh, psychological adaptation that's sensitive to that kind of information. It appears to go in one ear and not the other, because men behave just the same whether or not the partner's taking birth control or not. Interesting, right? Right. So, yeah. So, in, in, in many cases, I guess the uh, um, all of these all of these um, uh, uh, you know unique features of our of our world today can can still be understood in an evolutionary context because all of all of the changes that are occurring. Uh, Basically, they can they create kind of predictable hypotheses, right? Um, yeah. Now, before we, I, I definitely want I want to spend a lot of time actually talking about mate preferences and, sure. and go, going into depth about jealousy and infidelity. But before that, um, I wanted to address the the controversial nature of evolutionary psychology because now, again, you know, it, it, it again evolutionary psychology. Um, it is a relatively new field compared to other other branches of psychology, but sure. probably just has the same amount of rigor involved. Yet it it also receives a a larger percentage of the criticism for for some reason. Yeah. So let's talk about a couple common criticisms and what and and how you would address them. So sure. uh, one one of the big ones is culture. Right, the influence of culture. So some some people would argue that, well, you know, um, 
if, if you're saying that there are these evolved mechanisms that are in all human beings, uh, how do you explain cross-cultural cross differences? So what, what, would you, what would you say to that? Well, first I'll say that, um, I mean, there, there is in fact now, uh, I mean, probably in the last 10 or 15 years, a very rich area of, of research that investigates exactly what we're talking about. Uh, and, and people often refer to themselves as cross-cultural evolutionary psychologists or evolutionary cross-cultural psychologists. And so there is a, you know, um, you know, there is a significant area of work that's investigating things like uh, cross-cultural variation. And um, I mean, the principle that, you know, the presumption is that we're all humans and we all have the same basic structure of mind and we all have the same basic set of adaptations, you know, assuming we're not talking about sex specific adaptations. Um, in which case, how do we understand cross-cultural variation? For example, and I'll just to continue the thread, there's been a lot of work on cross-cultural variation in sexual jealousy. Um, and some of this, you know, I've done along with colleagues and we find, for example, that there's a huge, we know in the United States there's a huge, a huge sex difference where men report being more upset by partner's sexual infidelity, women more upset by partner's emotional infidelity, and that's related to the sex-specific adaptive problems that men and women have currently faced. Okay, now what we've found, and now there's work on about, I don't know, maybe 50 different cultures. It's not every culture in the world, but it's maybe 50 in every continent. And what we find is that the sex difference is there in every single culture. It does not reverse in fact, it doesn't even nullify. There is no culture where, uh, where men are more upset by emotional infidelity than are women, or women more upset by sexual infidelity than are men. On the other hand, there's very interesting cultural variation. So for example, we find that sex difference is smallest, it's still there, but it's smallest in Northern European countries, in Norway and Finland and Sweden. It's there, it's significant, but it's significantly smaller. Um, whereas uh, it's huge, I mean, just gigantic in African countries, and in South American countries. I don't have an explanation for that, but it needs to be explained. And that is where a lot of the work is, is now, is trying to understand cross-cultural variation. And I think the most promising avenue, at least initially, is to ask what is different about the input that these different, that people are getting in these different cultural environments. Um, rather than assume that people must be built differently in South America and in Africa than they are in Northern Europe. Um, I think that is a much more um, uh, likely to be false presumption. And so you want to ask, what are the kind of inputs that the universal adaptations are processing? And might that account for the differences in the output of those adaptations? So if, if there was, is it, is it possible that, um, that, if you were to observe something that was completely counterintuitive to what to to an evolutionary uh, psychology principle, so let's take um, let's take attractiveness for example. So, evolutionary psychology uh, proposes that there are sort of biological standards of attractiveness that we can measure. Um, if if there if there were a culture that completely defied that standard of attractiveness, the, the waist to hip ratio, so 
uh, right? There's identified a waist to hip ratio that is that is uh, that signals um, fitness uh, for humans. Is it is it is that possible? If you were to observe that culture, what would that do to the uh, to the to the the data showing that there there are biological uh, factors that are associated with attractiveness? Yeah. Well, I mean, as you noted, um, I mean, at this point, actually, the waist hip ratio example, um, there is some variation now. It's not necessarily the case that that 0.7 waist hip ratio is the most preferred. There is some variation. So well, let's just take another example. Let's take an example. It's okay. Uh, let's take an example like men preferring youth and physical attractiveness more than do women in a prospective partner. And the question is, you know, is that true in every culture? Um, and the answer is it is uh, in every single culture. So now up to almost a hundred different cultures where in every one of these cultures, men report valuing physical attractiveness and youth more than to women. Women on the other hand report valuing resource uh, acquisition and status driving more than do men. Okay, but let's imagine we find a culture, but you have to, so there's the backdrop. Backdrop is there's, you know, 20 years worth of research um, 30 years worth of research and about, you know, several dozen studies across a hundred different cultures showing that men value physical attractiveness and youth more than do women. Now the onus is going to be on that the researcher who finds that among the bongo bongo or some other remote tribe. Now, suddenly it's men who value status acquisition and women value attractiveness and youth. My bias, and I, I don't think it's my bias. I think, I think a rational person would say the, the weight, of the evidence is such that the person who finds something dramatically different really has to, we have to, we have to look into it. Think about this. How could this have come about? I mean, what we, let's imagine that it really is. And we replicate it and by God, you know, there it is. It's a reversed sex difference. Well, we'd have to think about what might be different in this particular environment. You know, is it something different in terms of, you know, the, the parental environment in the, the local, you know, uh, social support. I mean, I have no idea. Um, but you wouldn't automatically just say, well, I guess is there, I guess men don't value physical attractiveness in youth more than do women. Um, but you would want to be humble. And I think the appropriate scholarly response would be, we need to know more about that. And I must say that every time someone claims that they found such a culture, it never holds up. Uh, it, it always turns out to have been, they were either lied to by their participants or they fudged the data. I mean, but it could be, and, and what you wouldn't do is you wouldn't throw out the idea that the best way to understand uh, psychology is by taking an evolutionary perspective. It, you know, it wouldn't discount the utility of taking an evolutionary perspective. Um, yeah, I think about the, uh, sort of like uh, the, the, the Danica Patrick scenario where it's like, well, you know, men have a preference for NASCAR and, and they, they tend to, you know, there's, well, let's just say preference. And then it's like, well, what about Danica Patrick? It's like, yes, that is, that is an exception that, that, I mean, you know, the exception that proves the rule. It just, I mean, the, the reason that, you know, the only famous NASCAR driver that is a female implies that there's some underlying preference. There's, there's some underlying yeah. preference for, for males. Right. Yeah. Um, Is that, yeah. That reminds me of a really good example. And I think that this touches on something that I think is, um, you know, I think is also very interesting and I think is relatively newer 
uh, within evolutionary psychology, and that's looking at, uh, well, for example, with respect to mate preferences, uh, we know for a fact that not every single man values physical attractiveness in youth more than does every single woman. In fact, we know that's not true. We know there are some women who value physical attractiveness in youth more than the average man and vice versa with respect, with respect to men valuing uh, status acquisition, for example. We know that there are some men who value status and resources in a partner more than does the average woman. There we're talking about within sex differences. I mean, both can be true. You could have average sex differences, which do exist, and yet you know, you've got you know, a thousand men. Well, some of those men, they're not all gonna answer exactly the same. And I think that's a very interesting question is how to understand uh, within sex variation. Why is it that some men, for example, just to bring it back again to sexual jealousy, some men do report that emotional infidelity is more upsetting than is sexual infidelity. Who are these men? You know, and I think the answer there, I think the most productive initial line of work is to ask what is different about you know, the way they're processing information or the information that, that's coming into their system rather than to assume that, well, they must be a different species. Um, you know, I mean, be, yeah, yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it, it gets me thinking about uh, the extent to which we engage in sort of uh, statistical thinking where, you know, thinking about uh, a group of human beings that vary, but have trends, like yeah. there are gender trends and some of those might be completely, you know, men and women might be completely different versus others that are that are far more subtle but you know if you look on average you might see a slight bump for males versus females or vice versa right. and um uh, i think yeah i think that that probably plays a role into into some of these discussions um sure. let's uh, so we've touched on mate preferences so let's let's dive in um now Obviously, there's so we're talking about both physical preferences and and personality preferences uh, for for males and females. Um, now, um, we talked about waist, waist to hip ratio. Waist to hip ratio. We know that there's some variation, but generally, generally there are some biological indicators of of attractiveness. What are what are some of the uh, the tried and true biological indicators of fitness that that we tend to see in the population? So do you mean of physical attractiveness? Like somebody would say, oh, that person's beautiful or? Well, let's say, yeah. So let's say physical attraction because obviously okay. there are, right? So some, the idea here is that we're talking about something observable, right? So the idea is that if I'm, if I'm out there searching for a mate, I'm physically making evaluations in terms of what I find attractive. Uh, what are some of the things that I might be looking for? Sure. So, and there are some, you know, well-established, uh, culturally ubiquitous sort of standards um, or traits. So we know in women. So in terms of women's attractiveness, um, we know that uh, youth, as reflected in, you know, um, fewer wrinkles, for example, in uh, more in larger lips, more plump lips. Um, these are all clearly linked. These are these are linked. Like plump lips are linked to. Uh, estrogen levels and therefore to youth, um, but also uh, relatively narrow uh, jaw for women and a relatively small chin. These are also linked to uh, sex steroids, namely testosterone. Um, 
these are, you know, these are features of faces that are ubiquitously reported to be attractive. And we know this because there's a whole history of, of work on ratings of attractiveness. And that's asked like, you know, Japanese people to assess attractiveness among, you know, sub-Saharan African people. They show them just a series of faces and every group pretty much agrees. I mean, agreement at the level of like 95%, you know, there's an incredible amount of agreements um, across cultures, across races. I mean, um, and it's in, and what we can ferret out is that in, in women, it's various traits associated with youth, um, with, uh, again, with smooth skin, with large uh, plump lips. In men, uh, attractiveness, physical attractiveness is typically key to, um, and this is true for women also, for high, high cheekbones, relatively high cheekbones. For men, it's a broad jaw, um, a relatively longer chin, um, relatively smaller eyes. In women, it's relatively larger eyes. So these are all sort of typical. In other words, there aren't cultures in which, you know, uh, and also symmetry is a very good predictor of radius of attraction. So relative symmetry of the face. Um, now I mean, the yeah, go ahead. the, the um, what, what I've what I've been really impressed with and fascinated with uh, is the evolution of the of the methodology for studying these topics. Right. So yeah. uh, twenty years ago, uh, maybe thirty years ago, the, the only way that we could objectively study attractiveness was by, you know, showing photos of individuals, maybe even bringing them in person. Right. Um, and, but now, uh, more advanced methods, we can take a face and alter, um, alter characteristics of that, uh, face in a digital environment, show it, show it to people and, and ask them, you know, which one they, which version they find more attractive. Right. Um, the best part about that is that uh, it, it actually is a it's a it's a better way to measure these these principles and test these hypotheses. Uh, has has this added uh, has this additional technology to study these questions um, made the case stronger for what we've seen? Definitely, definitely. Uh, I mean, aside from I want to put to one side a lot of the research on ovulatory cycle effects and the extent to which um, a woman's uh, place in her ovulatory cycle affects her attractiveness or affects her ratings because that work is getting, um, I think it's less clear. I mean, I, it's, there's new research suggesting that the findings aren't quite as clear as was once thought. On the other hand, all of the work looking at things like assessments of physical, of facial physical attractiveness of, you know, you know, things like, width of the jaw, long, you know, length of the chin, the symmetry of the face have been, um, all of that work has been, you know, um, very well replicated using much more fine-tuned methodological techniques. Um, yeah, and I think it's uh, what it does, and you can make, uh, you can show that attractiveness goes up, you know, with tiny increments, you know, that nobody even knows consciously that the face looks any different, uh, but you know because you've, you've adjusted uh, the computer image. You've adjusted the extent to which, you know, testosterone has been enhanced or decreased. Um, and so there are a lot of people who have built careers on just this kind of research, which is, you know, super, um, you know, it, it relies, not in a bad way, but it relies appropriately on, you know, uh, technology that was only dreamed of, you know, 30 years ago. Right. Um, now, uh, you, you, you previously mentioned that, that men tend to focus on, on physical attractiveness and, and, and youth uh, more than women. Um, 
let's uh, so let's move on past the physical uh, attributes a little bit and talk ab about personality. So, um, I, I I would be willing to say that if you if you ask the average woman on the street, what are you looking for in, in a male? Um, you might hear sense of humor. You might hear has a job. Like th those are those are those are two of the big things. Obviously, sure. there's something underlying those that that might uh, that it's a little bit more complex. It's not just about the job. It's not just about sense of humor. Um, but is that is that accurate? Is that something that would be supported with with the the liter in the literature? Yeah, I mean, I would say that most of that literature, just to be clear, actually differentiates whether we're talking about, you know, would you want to have sex with that person or would you want to potentially get involved in a relationship with that person? And that really is two different questions. Um, I mean, there is overlap, of course, in, in some of the characteristics desired in a prospective partner, but, but there are some interesting differences as well. Um, so, for example, um, yeah, I mean, uh, so we can talk about... Uh, women's long-term mate preferences, absolutely. Actually, the top three for both men and women across cultures for long-term partners are good sense of humor, uh, kindness, um, and something like uh, dependability or emotional stability. In other words, the, on the, this is based on work where you're asking someone, okay, what are you looking for in a marriage partner? Okay, well, yeah, it's nice if they're attractive, but that's you know that may or may not be the most important, in fact, we know it's not the most important thing. The most important thing are things like, I think it's intelligence. It's kindness, intelligence, and good sense of humor or something like that. It's not, men don't say physical attractiveness is the number one thing on average. What's interesting is that for men, out of 18 characteristics, for men, physical attractiveness is like number four or five. For women, it's like number nine or 10. Note that it's not at the bottom. I mean, women also would prefer to be with someone who's you know pretty to look at. Um, you mean, after all, you're going to be with them um, than someone who's not or someone who, you know, looks unhealthy. Um, that's also uh, that, that scores very highly across cultures for both men and women. Good health. Um, so, yeah, in terms of personality. Um, uh, yeah, but I, I mentioned dependability, emotional stability. I mean, that's so, so you said that. Um, uh, it, it, it is important to distinguish between whether or not you want to uh, have intercourse with the person versus settle down with that person. Right. Um, now, uh, those, those motives, I, I assume they kind of ebb and flow over time. Uh, how, how, so what do we know about, um, about, you know, are there situational factors? Uh, I assume age is a, is a big part of it. What, what are the, what are the factors that will, that will, push people uh, to one motivation or the other? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's been some work on this on, uh, you know, we know that I'm just thinking about uh, women for one moment. Uh, so the extent to which they're pursuing or interested in a long-term relationship versus a short-term relationship, we know that uh, women, young women are, again, self-reportedly, and there's some triangulated sort of research that suggests that they're not just lying. I mean, Younger women are more likely to report being involved in short-term relationships than are older women, except older women who have recently divorced. Older women who have recently divorced often report, you know, engaging in uh, short-term sexual relationships. Now, the question is, are they engaging in those relationships by design, or do they have some, you know, or was this a short-term relationship that was, you know, they were hoping, you know, might, you know, blossom into a long-term relationship? And, and there's some work 
uh, looking at some of those questions. Um, one thing I did want to mention before I forgot is there's very interesting uh, uh, time difference, so, so uh, preferred time difference. So for women who are interested in a long-term partner, I mentioned that, you know, physical attractiveness is not irrelevant. I mean, it's like, you know, towards the bottom half or so, it's still important. Where, but physical attractiveness becomes incredibly important if we're talking about a short-term sexual partner. Then uh, women will report that the most important thing is that he's pretty. He's pretty to look at. Um, one, one possible explanation is that, I mean, what are women getting out of a short-term sexual relationship? Well, well, ancestrally, one of the things they're getting are potentially good genes, high-quality genes. Um, I mean, there, there's work on women's, the, the benefits that women uh, reap by virtue of short-term mating. Uh, but a lot of this work suggests that, uh, again, even if modern women are taking birth control, ancestrally, short-term mating by design from a female's perspective may well be, you know, the solution to the adaptive problem of how do I get good genes uh, for, my, for my offspring. Um, and we know that guys who are more physically attractive, they're more sexually attractive, I mean, they have more sex, they're propositioned for more sex, you know, um, they're more likely uh, uh, to be unfaithful to their partners. And so they have something that women desire um, in these short-term contexts. Now, I wonder if there's, for, uh, is, it, is it possible that one of the motives for uh, a, a woman engaging in a short-term sexual relationship, uh, I mean, are there social is there, is there a social benefit for that? Like a, a signaling or, um, cause I mean, yeah, one of the things that I find fascinating about this research is that it, it, everything gets complicated when you, when you have two, when, you know, when you have two individuals trying to build a relationship. So like, it, it sounds like it could be, um, signaling to other women that I am capable of getting, you know, attractive males. It could be something like, um, it, it simply boosts my, my self-confidence and that has some sort of impact on my future ability to obtain attractive mates. I know, I, I, I know enough males. I've had enough conversation with, uh, with, with other men about, you know, just the idea of, 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 you know, it sounds crude, but conquering, you know, sleeping or, or, or uh, copulating or, hooking up with someone that's, that's uh, more attractive than them gives them a huge boost of confidence. Sure. Um, I don't know if you, if that, if that has played a role in any of the, the findings. Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. In fact, um, I mean, typically, uh, yeah, I mean, women do report that it's a, it makes them feel better about themselves if they can, you know, basically, um, you know, hook up with a guy who's super attractive, who other women agree is super attractive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the question is, I would see that as more of a proximal sort of benefit. Um, the question is, why do women respond like that? Why do women, why are women insensitive to what other women think about, you know, the attractiveness of the men with whom they have sex? And I think um, there's definitely, I mean, in a highly social species like humans, it matters. People talk about it. People talk about who's had sex with whom, and we have this new work, uh, it just got accepted, it'll be out in uh, JPSP, on humans, uh, human status criteria across, um, it's about 20 different cultures. But basically what we look at is how different acts by men and women are viewed across different cultures. And there are, on average, uh, it, if a woman's gonna have sex on a short-term basis, 
she has, you know, by, by, um, you know, by other people's reports, she actually stands to gain in status if he's super attractive um, and lose in status if he's not at all attractive. I mean, there are cultures by the same token that if a woman has short-term sex, she's perceived as, you know, she loses great amount of status. Um, but what I'm, what I'm getting at here is um, it's very clear that uh, status acquisition for women certainly can, can be tied to the attractiveness of the men with whom she has sex. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right in bringing that up. And I think I agree. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, so I, I did want to get your take on, on today's trends, uh, in, uh, in, in terms of, um, uh, intimate relationships. So it seems as though, um, again, you know, obviously there's some age effects. I'm 37. Uh, you know, I, I can't really speak for, for those in their twenties, but, it seems as though traditional masculinity in an intimate relationship has become less important over the last, let's say, 30 years. Whereas, so it, in the past, it, it might have been, it, it just feels as though, um, you know, being hardy, being stoic, um, working with your hands, kind of these, these stereotypical masculine traits have become less important and 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 now women have become more accepting of of variability in men and are you know being attracted to men that don't exhibit these traits um you know i i, I see i see a lot of memes about nerds or sexy right this yeah, idea right. That, that that a really intelligent individual that isn't necessarily physically um physically strong or or, or like that um that, that women are reporting that they're are, are proud to be attracted to this type of male. Um, yeah. I, do you have thoughts about that? Have you, have you seen the same trend or am I just making this up? Well, no, I mean, I think, uh, yeah. I mean, what we do find though, I don't know that that's necessarily new. I mean, it may be that we're talking about it more, but um, I mean, women, you know, trade off, for example, physical attractiveness and masculinity uh, in a long-term context, they'll trade that off by their own reports. They'll trade that off. There's a lot of interesting work doing these like little economic games. You give them a certain number of tokens and they get to like partition out, you know, uh, to the different categories, the different preferences, how they would divvy it up. And if you're talking about a long-term relationship, women generally are, are reasonably forgiving of a wimpy guy. So long as he commands status and commands resources and has, you know, is very intelligent and he has a, you know, a trajectory in front of him. But I don't know that that's necessarily any different. Um, so would that would that? Okay, so that's interesting. So it's 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 not so much that they're less masculine. It's 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 just a a shift away from physical, you know, traditional American masculine traits to a different type of status. Like it's yeah. it's that maybe it's the it's it's how status has changed and and and, and signaled. Uh, but do you think that would also be true for short-term sexual relationships? So it makes sense long-term for status in the in the 50s is going to work every day and fixing things around the house. Status now might be just you know work, being a software engineer and bringing home enough resources and money to take care of the family. Uh, but do you think that would also be observed with the short-term sexual relationships? Uh, 
No, it's not actually. I mean, women continue to value by their own reports, physical attractiveness and sexiness. It can be asked in a variety of different ways. Um, I mean, if you ask them, they will tell you that they're not at all forgiving of a guy who's wimpy and not attractive if they're talking about a short-term relationship. I mean, even if he's, you know, um, I mean, they'll trade off, they're, they're, sorry, they're less likely to trade off physical attractiveness and sexiness and muscularity. Um, and that doesn't seem to have changed uh, much at all. I mean, we did, we published a paper a few years ago where we looked at um, the changes in mate preferences uh, over the past, I think we had over the past uh, 60 years. We had data from like the 1930s all the way up to, to at that time, the 19, you know, late 1990s, early 2000s. And really not a lot changed despite all of the upheaval, you know, in, in the culture and all the access to media and, you know, mainstream, you know, sort of being inundated with all this. But there were a couple of changes. One is both sexes emphasized physical attractiveness more. Both sexes emphasized physical attractiveness more uh, in the modern environment than in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. And one explanation, I don't have the explanation, but one, one hypothesis is that that's what happens when you have mass media exposure to impossibly beautiful people. You know, is it, you know, it might sort of tickle those psychological mechanisms and cause people to, you know, misassess how prevalent attractive people are in their environments. So at any rate. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, I, I do want to, uh, so let's move on and talk a little bit about, um, about uh, jealousy and intimate partner violence. Sure. Um, Cause I know you, you've done a lot of work in this area. Um, is there, um, is, you know, what is the, what's the recipe for, for partner directed violence? Are there, I assume there are a couple factors that might make this behavior more likely. Yeah. I mean, if we're just talking, well, um, I mean, we know the predictors of intimate partner violence, just talking about, just talking about just physical violence for the moment. Um, I mean, it's much more likely to occur uh, well, first of all, it's much more likely to be men physically abusing their partners. Um, and very often, men's abuse is preceded by their suspicions of their partner's infidelities. And whether those are actual or not, the fact is men perceive this risk. And so um, we know that, and this is across every culture for which we have data, that suspicions of a partner's infidelities are tragically predictive of men's physical violence against their partners. Um, men are more physically violent when they're mated to younger and more attractive women as well. Um, you know, but again, um, you know, you want to look at, you know, the particular sort of um, couple also. I mean, mate value discrepancy, you know, when one partner is, is you know, has higher mate value or possible value as a partner on the mating market. Um, that's a predictor of, of domestic violence. Um, but one thing. Right, so the, so the idea of, yeah. So, uh, let's take a step back. So, um, you, you can think of each person in a relationship as having a certain level of mate value, which is sort of an, uh, basically a summary of physical attractiveness and resources and uh, yeah. whatever, whatever fits into the attractiveness equation. Right. Um, so, so the idea is that if there's a discrepancy, uh, one partner is far more successful slash attractive than the other, 
that that could be the breeding grounds for for uh, friction. Yes, it could be right. Um, and you know the 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 work to date suggests that uh, you know violence is more predictable where it's the woman who has much higher, if we're talking about heterosexual relationships, where it's the woman that has a much higher mate value than does the man. Um, I mean, so how does, how does that, uh, sorry. So how does, how does that, uh, how does that explanation work? Right. So, you know, uh, a naive, a na naive person would say, well, um, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, why is it that, why is it that men would be capable of physically assaulting someone in an intimate relationship. Why would, why would it doesn't make sense to me, right? Why, why would that even be an evolved behavior? What, how does, yeah. what does the explanation look like for that type of um, behavior and, and why we, why we engage in it? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, the explanation for men's violence against their partner uh, turns on the presumption that it works. So men who, beat their partners, who physically assault their partners, uh, one possibility is that ancestrally, however much we abhor it morally, uh, it worked. So men, uh, women who are physically assaulted by their partners become fearful of you know, being unfaithful or of leaving their partner. Um, and I think that's part of the answer to why it takes women so many times to actually leave. I mean, they're, they're afraid for their life. And it also, in a sad way, it, it underscores the, the evolutionary imperative to, to reproduce in a relationship, right? So you, if you think from a male perspective, they want to, they want to uh, you know, pass on their genes onto the next generation. It, it, it's not terribly important that you have a good emotional relationship with that, with that woman as long as your genes are going to be able to make it into the next generation. Is that, is that accurate? I mean, but there are also costs to using physical violence. Um, I mean, men do sometimes, uh, you know, they're, they're violent to the point of killing their partners. Um, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, sort of debate about whether that was a designed killing. Was that the intention or was it, you know, a consequence of the violence going a little bit too far? Um, and I guess not to get into that, uh, here, but uh, I wanted, it reminded me as you were speaking that um, there's also very interesting work now, it's been replicated both in the United States and in Mexico, showing that women who live in a community uh, in which they have adult male genetic relatives are less at risk of physical abuse by their partner than are women who don't have, you know, uh, adult male genetic relatives living in the vicinity. It's as if men married to these women are processing, well, I, I might not want to use this tactic because they may come after yeah. And men yeah. do come after abusive spouses. Um, yeah, you, know, you have, it's like you have, yeah, I, 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 I'm not going to take that kind of risk when I have my wife's bro large brothers uh, living next door in the, within yeah. five minutes. Yeah, that's interesting. And that's what the data indicate. Um, and again, all that this, this work was simply looking at correlations between number of adult male relatives and frequency of violence. And there is a strong negative relationship between, between these two variables. We don't know why. One hypothesis is that males process this kind of information. Um, and you know, maybe I, pro I shouldn't do this. I mean, I brought that up because there are also costs to using 
physical violence. Um, you know, it's, if there weren't, then, you know, in principle, many more men would be using it. So uh, for, for, uh, for final thoughts, I, I always, if, if, every time I, I'm talking to a researcher, I, I always like to ask at least one applied psychology question, yeah, which, yeah. Is, which is that um, looking at all, all of uh, these factors that are relating to uh, uh, domestic violence scenarios and stuff like that, whether it's verbal or fi- uh, whether it's psychological or physical, um, do you, I, I know it's an early area for, it's, this is this fairly new research, but it, it, do you see any potential application for uh, developing a solution from this research, right? I, I, I know that from purely theoretical research, oftentimes it might just be, well, we know that shouldn't work, right? right. You know, the data shows that, well, that's not a great idea. Um, but do you, do you anticipate any, any, or, or, you know, any, any potential ideas that could, could apply to public policy or, yeah. or, or to communicate to, uh, to victims or potential victims of, of these, uh, these types of behaviors? Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, I think, well, one of the things, well, one of the reasons that, that women don't leave abusive partners is because they, they have the sense that they have nowhere else to go. Um, I mean, that was sort of the impetus for, you know, the development of these shelters for victims of domestic violence. And it also accounts for why these shelters are almost always located in undisclosed locations. I mean, the reason is that men will go to incredible lengths to track these women down. Um, and I think what this, I mean, we know that these domestic violence shelters are far over, you know, over capacity virtually all the time. They have very few resources. Um, I mean, and this is just one, one possible solution is to do a much better job in providing these kinds of support services for women who are victims of domestic violence. Um, they need a place to go. They need, and they don't need just a place to go. They need, you know, money for food. They need money for a ticket to get to a different city where their mom lives or something. And I think, um, you know, some of that is going on, but, you know, my reading of the literature is that, you know, we have a long ways to go before, you know, before most women see that as a potential, as a potential solution. Um, so that's just an initial thought. Um, I mean, no. we know is the is the are, are, are is this research um, is there anywhere we can go to find uh, to find uh, potential articles on this topic you mean specifically on uh, the partner uh, the, your research oh, sure. on the intimate partner violence sure absolutely so I mean we published a lot of work on on this topic um, over the last 20 or so years and you can find all of my papers um, and books and stuff like that at my lab website, uh, which is just my name, basically. It's www.toddkshackleford.com. And so, and it's all, you know, you can find it by the title. I mean, you can click on the article and, and download it right there. Um, so that's all at my lab website. Um, and, uh, well, anyway, uh, there's other, uh, many books uh, on the topic and, and people are welcome to contact me directly and I'd be happy to, to um, you know, to correspond, and my email is also listed on my web website. 
Well, great. Thank you. Uh, it's been a it's been an enriching conversation. I, I really appreciate you uh, taking uh, the time out of your day to uh, to to be on. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. I, I appreciate it as well. that concludes episode one of why do we do that I hope that you enjoyed it um, if you did uh, head over to Facebook and type in why do we do that uh, you can follow our Facebook page uh, just click like or follow uh, you can also email me at uh, why do we do that podcast at gmail.com once again that's why do we do that podcast at gmail.com uh, hopefully in the short term uh, I'll have uh, a new episode for you every month uh, for you to listen to. Uh, but until next time, I'm Ryan Moyer, hoping that you were able to get some answers to the question, why do we do that?